Hello, everyone. Before we get started on today's episode with my interview with Fiona Givens, I wanted to go ahead and just share with you a little bit that you can look forward to actually moving beyond this miniseries that she and I produced that you will be hearing this week. So as Fiona and I worked together this week on the writings of Julian of Norwich, and then we did a beautiful episode at the end of the week where I interview Fiona about her own sort of personal history Uh, We visited with one another and I asked her if she would be at all willing and open in sharing some of her work that she's done on the feminine divine. So after a series of conversations and some thoughts, she got back to me and said she was in fact willing to share with us her research on a forthcoming book that she is in the process of writing about the feminine divine. I could not be more excited that we are going to be talking about this here on the Latter-day Struggles podcast. So just to give you a little bit of a sense of what to look forward to, this week we are talking about the nature of God and Fiona's own experiences in coming to know God through the mystic Julian of Norwich, which you're going to be listening to today. Then next time we have the biographical sketch of Fiona, which I thoroughly enjoyed and I think you're going to love. Then in several weeks or maybe a couple of months, you will be hearing a miniseries that Fiona and I are putting together that are going to really jump into her research on the feminine divine. We are actually producing that this week and are in the thick of that. And so that will come to you a little bit down the road, but I wanted to kind of give you some context so that you can know not only what you're going to be getting this week with her and I, but a collaboration that I think is going to be, well, I know it's going to be incredible. Okay, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie, and I am really excited to have a wonderful woman here with me today to visit with. I'd like to welcome you here, Fiona Givens. How are you today? I am very well, thank you. And it is a privilege for me to be with you this morning. (laughs) Well, thank you. I have been reflecting on how exciting this is for me, and I have decided I actually kind of want to share with you, Fiona, and also with our listeners why this is so special to me. It's there's a little bit of a backstory, but I promise it's worth it. So as many of you know, I went back to graduate school to become a counselor many years ago to a Nazarene university. And through that experience, I became acquainted with a lot of theological great, great ones, because a lot of the um, faculty and staff were my friends and they introduced me to some very, very interesting thinkers. And I'm thinking about Richard Rohr, Henry Nouwen, Mm. I'm probably saying his last name wrong, but Brennan Manning, Basil Pennington, Thomas Merton. I started listening and reading all of these wonderful thinkers. And this was many years ago. And I can't help but remember thinking, where are these people in our church? Like, who are, why why don't we create any theologians Mm. and great deep thinkers and As time went on, I was introduced to a book called The God Who Weeps, and I read it, and then I listened to it many times, and the voice of the reader was this beautiful British voice, and I would go on my bike ride, and I would listen. It was like a lullaby. Anyways, I fell in love with that book. I fell in love with the reader, 
And I finally discovered, okay, at least we have two. We have two theologians in our church. I know that's not a fair estimation, but this is my own story. And so for me to be able to be visiting with you, Fiona, who was one of my, you were maybe the first woman to midwife me through and into deeper spiritual thought and true theology. And so, oh, thank you. Yeah, the God who weeps is, it's got to be up there. It was just, um, just extraordinary the way it came to be, the way it came together. That that was actually a really important book for me to research and write because it was at a time when I was really struggling with my faith. When I joined the church, I lost my family, and there is um, irrevocable divide between us, and it has been painful all of my life, and I can't see that it is ameliorating anytime soon. So that that gave me reason to think and to pause and to realize that our religious tradition really did have something to contribute in a very significant theological way to the conversations that are being had um, among all of the the readers you love, the speakers I love. I mean, I think Henri Nouvin, I had to actually look up his, how to pronounce his name because I didn't know, but um, I think he's uh, he he's particularly visible in our last book, but they all are. And it and and it was the same thing for me discovering them and reading them and continuing to read them it was like there are other voices and then that lifted me out of this you know single isolated tiny we are alone church to a global church yes. and i realized that this wasn't what i loved about it, it was this was inherent to our tradition it's in our sacred texts that was important for me, this idea of a vulner- vulnerable weeping God, um, which really helped me understand why we had Jacob 5, which, you know, it's just sort of in there and nobody really knows why. And it's terribly long and awfully repetitive. But then I realized that it was being repetitive in order for us to understand or to get that God is vulnerable, mm. that he weeps, that he grieves, that at some point he's not entirely certain that he is going to succeed and uh, so you really have this sense of belonging of him belonging with us that he's in our pain he's in our lives and for me to have that articulated in a sacred text and then particularly again in Moses 7 was really important to me because I couldn't find that particular vulnerable God in the sacred texts of other Christian religious traditions so yeah, it, it's so interesting that it was at a really important time in your life because it really was for me as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love anything that I can understand and learn personally mm-hmm. about an author. I used to jump straight to chapter one, and I never do that anymore. If there's a preface, if there's a story, if there's an introduction, acknowledgments, I always want to read all of them because I want to know the heart of the the person who's actually pouring themselves into the book. And so... What a privilege and an honor that I get to be visiting with you, Fiona. And the fun part about today's conversation is actually we've already sort of started talking about what we're going to more deeply talk about today. When I was visiting with Fiona the last time, 
we were together, I said, what do you want to talk about? What are you feeling the deepest passion for? And in her own words, I remember this because I thought it was really cute. She said, Valerie, I think Julian of Norwich is our girl. That's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> and so, and I thought, you know what? I am really excited about this. I have always, I've heard about her and I have, she's of course quoted extensively in a lot of the great thinkers and theologians and mystics that I love and read. And yet I have never read her firsthand. And so we talked about various translations and went back and forth. And I finally, I've read my first Julian of Norwich book. And today we are going to go deeply into this book to the end that we talk about some of the most important understandings and theologies of God that she introduces to us that I've noticed now that I've listened and read a lot of Fiona's and Terrell's books. And of course, I've listened to, gosh, almost everything that Richard Rohr has written. And I'm thinking, oh, Julian's everywhere. She informs so much of what I consider to be a theology of God that is kind, loving, generous, compassion, compassionate, and has this infinite love for us, um, their children. So today we're going to talk about this book. Those of you who want, I will put it in the show notes. My version that I read, I know you read a different version because you probably read something more in her original Middle English or something, right, Fiona? Well, yes, no, um, I, I I did have a lot of experience reading Chaucer as mm. a young uh, woman, so yes, she's not entirely unfamiliar. The language she uses actually takes me back to my school days, where I, which were really happy days, so mm. yeah. Yes, I did take a middle English class at BYU many years ago, and those were not happy memories. <laughs> so I actually, I mean, the, the experience was happy. It was just the class that was very challenging. And I read Chaucer too in middle English, but that was a, that was a dark, that was a dark day for me, the class that I tried to work through middle English. So anyways, those of us who don't want to do middle English, the, the translation that I read is Julian of Norwich, the showings uncovering the face of the feminine in Revelations of Divine Love, and the translator is Mari by Star. Don't worry about writing that down. I will make sure I put that in the show notes for those of you who want to go deeply into this because it is well worth, well worth the read. Now I'm going to just be asking, we're going to talk about several topics that come up in Julian's uh, showings, but I think what I'll do before I do anything is, Fiona, will you kind of explain to everybody what these, the history of, and what the showings, she calls them showings, but I would suspect most people don't know what that means because I know I didn't before I started reading that. So why don't you just set us up if you would? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think um, for showings, we would translate them as revelations and um, we know very little about her. In fact, we have no idea what her name is. She happened to be an anchorite at a a church in Norwich called Julian, and um, and it was only at the ver- at the beginning of the last century actually that her works were discovered. So we are very fortunate that you know somebody wrote these down. We're not sure that it was Julian, but probably a scribe, you know, came and um, sat outside her cell because she was an anchorite. So it was it's a very severe discipline. You lock yourself within. Um, it's, uh, I don't know, I've, I've seen it. Um, it's obviously, it's not the same. It was quite badly hit during the Second World War. But uh, this idea that you anchor yourself to a church, literally, mm. 
and there is no exit and no entrance. And so you are there for the duration of your life. In fact, there have been a couple of anchorites since um, Julian who have lived in that same place, one quite recently. Um, But there is a a window that opens out onto the street. So um, as most mystic women, she is very renowned for her healings and her sayings. So people would come by and talk to her. So she had a very busy, um, engaged life. And she happened to be living when the bubonic plague struck Europe every two years for almost a decade. So this was um, an appalling time where millions of people were losing their lives, where one would think that everybody was in despair because nobody knew who was going to be hit, when it was going to strike. And then we have these marvelous writings she produces some of the most beautiful revelations of God, to my mind, ever. And that's what I find so extraordinary. It's in this deep, deep darkness that this woman also has a vision, and it's dark. Um, She wanted to see the crucifixion. She wanted to be part of it. Um, It's very detailed. It is very bloody. But once she gets into the actual showings and she describes those as things that she was shown that she was seen and of course it took her quite some time to write them down years or have them recorded Um, they reveal the god among us and they reveal very distinctly a unique God for that time period. We're talking about the medieval ages. This is before the Reformation, but Augustine's theology has a hold. It is a time during Anselm, where he is an English theologian who essentially creates um, the justification theory that Christ had to suffer um, in order to justify us, Or, um, but it was always our, all our fault. And we were at enmity with God the Father. And um, if it hadn't been, and it was, he, he pictured it very much like a liege lord vassal situation, which, which would be typical. It's the medieval ages. And that was the hierarchical structure with which he was familiar. So you have this liege lord, the sovereign to whom you must uh, give obeisance and, and take everything that he justly imposes upon us um, because we are mere serfs and we don't merit his love. So, to, and, and this was really the prevailing image of God and the gospel at the time she was writing. So then to have this woman come out of obscurity, really, as she is a woman and be able to feel that she could write so boldly about a God who not only felt our pain, but who loved us. There is nothing that we could say or do or be that would ever minimize his love for us. Or there is no sense of uh, judging, no sense of anything but the very the one of the very first revelations, and that's the one that really struck me. And I suppose I do have to say, Julian of Norwich has been the anchor in my life. I had not felt God's love 
I felt it intellectually, but I never felt it emotionally until I read this book. And then as I was reading this book and her showings, I felt God's absolute love, not only for all children, but for me. And and I think that's probably her strongest influential ability is to help us feel that we are loved no matter what. And so um, may, may I share this? This is what was really, really struck me at the beginning was she talks about this story and there is a servant and he is with his Lord. So that servant is every man, one of us and with God. And God has a mission for us to fulfill. And it's an individual mission <clears throat> because she makes it very clear that there's only one person with God. It's not universal. It's for you. And uh, so he sends him. Well, he asks first, do you want to do this mission? And we are so thrilled that we have been invited to do this one thing for God that we don't just walk away. We run in haste to fulfill this. Our heart is so full of joy that God is trusting us with 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 doing this thing, which is probably just surviving mortality. But shortly after, the, the servant falls into a ditch. And it is very clear that the servant has sinned because of the way Julian reacts, because she looks immediately and says, oh my goodness, this person has sinned, probably very greatly because she immediately turns to look at the father and to see if his countenance has changed, what blame he um, he will give to this servant who's run off. And he says, why? Why should I punish? Why should I blame this person who for love of me set out on this precarious mission? Wherefore should I not reward him manifoldly? because uh, and bless him more than I would have had he not have gone or she not have gone because she went out of love for me. Wherefore should I not praise her and elevate her station? That was stun stunning. I had never heard of a God who would love us, not in spite of, but because of the mistakes we made because we volunteered to come knowing that it would be dangerous because we loved our God. That was for me and is still for me, my anchor. It doesn't matter what we do. God expects us to fall in this life. Life is difficult, um, but that he is with us. He did not leave the servant on his journey and that when we fall, when we sin, wh whatever it is we do, when we look, he is still there and he is smiling more broadly with even greater and deeper love. It feels like she, throughout her showings, is consistently over and over again shocked at the immensity of God's unconditional love. That's what I noticed as I was reading. I actually want to, if I may, 
There are a few mm. quotes I'd like to just intermingle Please. of her words throughout this, because to me also, it is, it brings up that the hymn that we sing often at church, I stand all amazed that she consistently was, I didn't know, I had no idea. This He loves me this much. It doesn't matter no matter what I do. And so let me just read a few of her words. She says, one who created us for love restores us through love, lifting us to an even higher state of bliss than we experienced before our fall. Another one is she says, God would never permit them to suffer for the actions they already paid for in their lifetime, meaning that life itself hurts and all of our efforts and strivings, they are the things that are the educa the educations that, that we grow and we learn through our missing the mark. And over and over again, the translator makes clear at the very beginning of this translation that to sin is to miss the mark. And so sometimes we often take this word sin and we use, we impose a lot of guilt and shame on this. And yet her point and Julian's point was that it's it's more about what we learn and how we grow through the experience and that God standing by is watching and loving us even more deeply as we work through the struggles and trials of life. Here's another quote. Julian says this, when he showed me that I would continue missing the mark in my life, he meant that we all would. And this realization, oh, sorry, as this realization penetrated my mind, I was filled with a gentle anxiety. But my beloved responded in this way, I will keep you safe. He said this with such love and steady reassurance, and my spirit felt so protected that I cannot possibly express it. I want to just circle back. He said, I will keep you safe, not I will reprimand you, not I will punish you, not that you must feel deep pain and suffering, but even through your sins, your struggles, your missing the mark, I will be with you and I will keep you safe. Okay, one more thing I wanted to talk about with regards to this particular topic, Fiona, is that it seems that she really is interested in her showings she wants to understand the nature of sin because I think she wants to overcome it or do better or make better sense of it. And maybe if you could respond to this question, it's, or at least just, just comment if you would, I'm, I'm so intrigued with throughout. She can't find anything there there. She said, he doesn't, there's no, there's nothing about sin. Sin is no thing. Sin is not something right. that God is interested in. And over right. and over again, it seems that she sort of keeps, you know, wondering and she's worried about this clearly throughout the many visions that she has. And so she says this, but the truth is I did not see any sin. I believe that sin has no substance, not a particle of being and cannot be detected at all except by the pain it causes. It is only the pain that has substance for a while and it serves to purify us and make us know ourselves and ask for mercy. The passion of our Lord gives us comfort against all of this. That is his blessed will. The tender will, the tender love that our beloved has for us moves him to console us swiftly and sweetly. What this means is all will be well and all will be well and every kind of thing shall be well. When he said these gentle words, he showed me that he does not have an iota of blame for me or for any other person. So talk, if you would, Fiona, about what happened. Where has this theology gone? 
that we feel so guilty and shame ridden for these struggles that we have, because this to me feels like a theology grounded in love that actually brings us close to God through our mortality. Absolutely. No, and I think I, I think you're right. I think this is probably the most important teaching that um, she shared. And, you know, I would say for this, she should be called a prophetess, but actually she's more than that. She is so much more than, than that. She is, um, I, I really do think, and I, I don't, I don't wish this to be blasphemous, excuse me, but I feel she is God among us when she is there and when she is writing, because I feel uh, such authenticity. Her words ring uh, true in a way I have never experienced before. But when I read them, it seems so remarkable because we are so set on this idea of sin and shame and alienation from God. And she's saying, no, no. Um, in fact, God loves you more um, because you set out on this journey and 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 exactly and, and we experience that sin is a wound, but I think sin has dominated. Um, the Western culture, particularly, not only with Augustine, because the um, the Christian uh, thought was much different. It was more similar to ours. There was this idea of, of a pre-mortality, idea of a post-mortality, an idea of earth life being educational, not punitive. Um, but then we came to the reformers, and unfortunately, just at the time that uh, Luther was sort of coming into this, uh, sinking into this hole, it wasn't an awakening by any any means, he discovered Augustine. And um, Augustine was strongly uh, a proponent of um, depravity, human depravity, inherited depravity, um, living in depravity, dying in depravity, and most of us going to hell in depravity. So it was a very, very um, blasphemous, I think, if we compare that to Julian and what she's saying. And it has really damaged us as, as Christianity, but then put us into the ridiculous situations of saying that God is also wrathful he can be wrathful and he can be sweet well if we're talking like a god like that we're talking about a schizophrenic and we are in a lot of trouble because we our minds aren't brilliant they're not enlarged we can't see things but then we are required to believe yes god is going to send you to hell but he loves you really which is why he's sending you there life is going to be really bad but the afterlife is going to be worse than most of you and and that has terrified and unfortunately it has taken a deep root in um the american version of the latter day saint tradition because um both uh, all Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin's doctrine and theology was brought over to the United States by the Puritans who were kicked out of England. But this very virulent form of 
of Lutherism stayed. And that became the the Christianity that was spread and that was embraced in this country. And unfortunately, our religious tradition, to a great extent, imbibed that. We hear that in our language. We hear that last year we studied the Old Testament, and we are encouraged to believe that God actually ordered the genocide of Egyptian children or that he is a magician, he likes to do magical tricks. Oh, you can do this, Pharaoh, oh, watch, I can do this even better. And it's like, this is a capricious and really self-serving and egotistical God who has really no love and compassion, although it is there. And and, and I have to say, of course, in the Old Testament, we do have that that repetition of hesed, but I think in our society, and, and I, I think globally, we are prone to think better of each other. And uh, and and there has been so much study done on trauma um, that we are seeing that essentially we are traumatized. And and I think this is what really comes out in in this um middle English language that is now being expressed in the vernacular more clearly. So for example, I I have always been disturbed by um, that verse, um, the sins of the fathers, or I will visit the sins of the fathers until the third and the fourth generation. And it's like, what have they done to you? That they're not even born yet, but you're going to put punish them as you are punishing, that's just not fair, that's not kind, that's cruel. But then if you switch the language from sin to trauma, and then you get it, because there is so much study that has been done recently and continues to be done on the subject of trauma. And yes, there is generational trauma. Um, in fact, all trauma studies started in um, in 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 counseling with Jewish uh, people who were the descendants of Holocaust victims, and they were reminded. They were told, "You must never forget this story. This is who you are." And so that is actually where the 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 trauma first started manifesting itself as something that was much bigger and much more dangerous um, to people's sanity and well-being in addition to how difficult life is. And trauma studies really became important and they are revealing things about us. So there is this famous Dutch traumatist whose name I am going to forget, of course, I'll remember it at the end of the episode, but he says trauma happens to all of us all of us it, it we we not only inherit it but we will all experience trauma of one degree or another in our lives and so what julian did for me in the medieval ages is switch the whole subject from sin to woundedness and salvation to healing because this is exactly what she is discussing in this book, although she does not have the contemporary vocabulary. She understands we are all wounded 
and God and that the Godhead's job is to heal us. And I think that's interesting. Um, Terrell and I had a couple of our, our research assistants actually look at the, the word heal and look how at, at how it's, it's figured in the last 10 years of general conference talks. And that some version of that verb healing has increased 400% oh, wow. in the last 10 years in general conference talks. That's a good thing. That's the... It is extraordinary. And what I find so beautiful is that we have got Richard Raw, N.T. Wright, Rob Bell. They're all saying the same thing. It seems to be a global phenomenon in Christianity. And um, so we are part, uh, I feel our faith tradition has an obligation to talk about the God manifest in Moses 7 and Jacob 5, that this is the God in our scriptures. This is the God whom we worship, although he's been sidelined for so many years because we've been so inured in this in this really um, pessimistic Protestant tradition that it's been hard for us to escape it. And then, of course, in the olden days, Catholicism was out. So we couldn't join the Catholics because they were the great and abominable church. But then Joseph, and I wish we'd go back to Joseph's um, writings and teachings more, but Joseph said the Catholic church had more truth than all the rest. And it was the same thing. They had not endowments, but they had a connection with the dead. They believed that there was a connection, that what we did in this life could affect those who had gone before and vice versa. So I, you know, I think that's really interesting. And then he goes even more broadly. He says, if there is anything beautiful, worthy of good report in this world, seek after those things. And suddenly he took us out. And unfortunately, we came back into this insular thinking of we are the only church, we're the only truth, and it is our duty to ensure that everybody receives that without and not recognizing that Joseph was saying, there is truth everywhere. And our duty to is to do our duty is to embrace it, all that truth, which then led me to the understanding that we're not talking about a little church Zion, just our church Zion. We are talking about a global Zion. And as Elder Theatre and Burton, whom I love so much, reminded us, we are all God's children. We are all God's children. And then I'm going to go on a bit and then I'm going to stop. But that's why for me, the baptismal covenants are the most important covenants that we make. Because in those covenants, we are invited to co-heal with Christ. So we have the covenants, uh, take upon you each other's burdens. That is Christ who took upon us his burdens all the way through his life, before his life and into Gethsemane and onto Golgotha. Um, The God who mourns with us when we mourn is God the Father. And the God who comforts us when we stand in need of comfort is God the Holy Spirit. And suddenly at our baptism, we are being invited by the Godhead to help them heal this world. 
Um, and for me, that is like the greatest gift we can give each other and the world. Sorry, I went on for quite a bit. That is exactly why I, that's what I want you to do. <laughs> I'm listening and I'm sure we're all just <laughs> wanting to hear your, <laughs> your thought process. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to circle us back, if I may, to a couple of things that you said, Fiona, because I feel like they're so incredibly important and actually they are connected to some of Julian's actual words. I, as a, of course, I'm, I'm a trauma therapist. And so I'm very, very interested in this concept of trauma and especially the idea of transgenerational trauma or trauma, trauma that is um, transmitted through the generations, through deep wounds that are had by our forefathers and that kind of run through us. And I honestly hadn't really ever connected what you just said until you were talking this idea that there is perhaps some transgenerational trauma around our fundamental understanding of the nature of God and how much that wounds us as, as a people as a people uh, big at large, Christianity at large, but also I think about through my own growth and development as I sit in Sunday meetings and especially as my understanding of the, the love of God has expanded, I can't help but hear woven throughout sermons and conversations and talks with the youth and Relief Society meetings and whatnot is, is this, in my opinion, tragic misunderstanding of the nature of God, this, this sense of a transactional relationship with, with God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, this idea that we need to earn their love, we need to earn their approval, we need to do this first before the atonement sort of becomes activated like the vending machine sort of idea. We do this, then they do that, but they withhold until. And furthermore, this understanding or this idea that, that God is probably generally disappointed in us until we do better and do more and then start over the next day doing better and more, which brings up so much internalized anxiety and shame. And it makes God challenging to worship. Oh, to love. Exactly. I mean, yes. not, not even to worship, but how do you love this God when every morning you wake up and it's like, oh, my goodness, almost what, what am I going to do wrong today? Right. How am I going to fall out of his disfavor today? And you live with that fear that nothing you can do will actually make up or justify you in the eyes of God. So essentially you're damned from the, and you live every day with that fear and that knowledge that no matter what we will do, we will never live up to those expectations. We are taught that God has of us. Yes. We are in a lose-lose situation from the very beginning. And you're right. I, I really do believe you're right. That in and of itself um, has created a basis not only for trauma, because I, 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 I absolutely agree with you about generational trauma, but expanding it, deepening it. Yes. So it's like we're born on our left foot, as it were. Anyway, we're born into a world that is 
going to be overwhelming and does overwhelm in really awful ways, most of us, but that with no matter what we do, whatever little thing we do, or even great thing we do, it's not going to count at the end of the day, because quite honestly, all of our failures far in our minds, and, and, and I, I think we're particularly good at doing this to ourselves. I know I am, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's like, okay, so there's this, so then you go back and there's this and there's this and there's nothing, nothing I can possibly do to earn God's love. And that we should be placed in a position to feel that we have to earn God's love that is blasphemous insofar as it is destructive. Absolutely. And Elder Holland gave a talk last year in which he says, God does not destroy. It is not in his nature so to do. It's not like, oh, I don't think I'll punish her this day or I might wait and punish her tomorrow, is that he can't. He cannot do anything to harm us. It's not that he chooses not to. It's not in his nature. And and we, I, 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 I've been in the church now ever since I was 19, so quite some time. But I have to say, that is not what I have heard. Right. And when Elder Holland articulated that, it's like that went into my mind and it's like, I have to remember that and I have to share that because God cannot punish. He cannot wound. He cannot do anything that will make us more uh, feel more badly about ourselves than it do. In fact, the reverse. He wants us to know I am with you. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why Julian impacted me so much. It does not matter what you do. You're good. I'm good with you. You are so brave. You are so courageous. You said you'd run on this errand for me. And you knew that it was probably going to be really bad. Not as bad as it was. You did not realize that you were going to fall so quickly into that ditch. But when you looked at me to see if I was going to punish you, you saw nothing but love and gratitude. And it's like, it's okay, Fiona. We'll get you out of this ditch. You just keep moving. And I think to circle back to what you said a minute ago, I think what why these kinds of conversations that you and I are having are so incredibly important is because I'm not convinced we are acquainted with that God. No. I don't think we know no. that God. We What I'm really thinking about, Fiona, is this is the foundation of so much. And I would say because of the feedback I get with the work that I do, there is there is a an, an epidemic of scrupulosity, OCD, of perfectionism, of a lot of shame-based pathology that we in the church are really struggling with. And I believe in some ways it has to do with our misunderstanding of actually the nature of God, because this is not God, but this is what we have internalized as God. And if it's internalized yes. as God, in some ways, to us, it feels just the same. It's the God that we have created that whips and beats and chastises and just demands something of us. And in some ways, it's it's so devastating to me as I think about it because it in it's it's a worship of and a belief in an entity that doesn't exist, but it exists in exactly. our minds and in our hearts, and therefore it becomes an agony to be in that kind of relationship with ourselves 
calling it a relationship with God? Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. And for many of us who serve missions, I haven't. That pain, um, that trauma is worsened because um, there are so many, if you would have an infraction, if you are back in your apartment at 10.32 rather than 10.30. And, and because um, so many missions are dry in the way that there are very few people to whom you actually get to speak, um, get to interact with, it allows your mind to actually continue to poison that relationship because uh, at least in my experience from many people with whom I have spoken and whom you probably treat who have served missions, this scrupulosity has just been made magnified yes. by two years of, uh, if I don't do this, I failed. If I, and it is destructive. Yes. And it is wrong and it is not of God, mm. um, as Elder Holland said. Uh, so I think we are in a more difficult situation than many other Christian churches, yes. if not all other Christian churches, because life is hard as it is. And then through our culture, which then manifests itself in our theology, we are... Uh, for any no other better expression, grinding the faces of the poor, mm -hmm. where we can vulnerable to begin with, we all are, um, and so yes, that has been my experience, and it has opened the floodgates to people leaving the church, yes. because they can't live with this idea that you're not good enough, and you will never be good enough. Life is hard enough as it is if you don't have a single cheerleader and actually God isn't for you at all, he's on the other side and he's silent notes taking whoever's taking them, but they're never silent notes of what we're doing. Well, they're silent notes. They're silent because they're so dreadful. The things that, you know, are being reported. And that is most unfortunate because it, uh, it is, I, I feel that our gospel has so much to offer that counteracts and is in complete contradiction to that. Yes. And I am hurt because most of my friends are either hurting or they're leaving because they cannot leave in, live in that pain. Yes. Who can live in that pain in addition to the pain you've got already to handle? So yes, I think I think you're I think you're really right. And it is such a shame. Yes, because we actually are the um, possessors of a gospel. We are a restoration gospel in the fact that our restoration goes back to the four centuries before Augustine. Mm. But we, we, I remember in my missionary discussions, I was told that this was progression, that that the Reformation was a good thing. It brought us closer to the restoration but it's like if you have a reformation then how is that restoration and so it's really in the last oh, i don't know 15 or 20 years since i've been engaged with the patristic fathers that i thought yes we are a restoration church but most of us don't realize we are or why we are but that beautiful optimistic gospel of god being with us god always being with us to the end and will wake welcome us home 
that reminds me of Elder Ushtov's, um, when he said that judgment is a place of healing, mm. a place where all things shall be right, where our heavenly parents will fall upon our necks and embrace us. So we are hearing tidbits of it, but I think that the damage has been really enormous. And my prayer is that we are able to recover because we are losing an entire generation. And I don't know what happens to a church if they lose an entire generation. It's it's like you said, there's there are breakthrough moments of this yes. kind of God. And yet so much of the majority narrative and what we hear and what we repeat over and over again is the exact opposite and is also in some ways actually reinforced like the the scrupulosity the high anxiety relationship with rightness with doing things right with getting up every morning anxious and afraid in some ways is considered is reinforced in in our in our in our in the in the church tradition let me just close this this particular portion of our conversation with this beautiful thought by julian And then I have a couple of other topics I want us to talk about. So she says this, and this is maybe it's hard to decide, but this is one of my favorite quotes that in in all of her showings, she says this, God's willingness to save us is equal to his power to do so. Christ himself is the foundation for human behavior. He teaches us to return evil for good. He is the embodiment of this love. He does for us what he teaches us to do for one another. He wants us to be like him, wholly loving towards ourselves and towards all beings. He does not want us to withdraw our love from ourselves or from other beings any more than he would ever withdraw his love from us as a result of our missing the mark. Now that is a theology that we, if we could only just embrace that and let that sink deep into our souls, we could see life as a place of learning, as a place of growth, where wounds happen. And as we miss the mark and are wounded, the healing experience is one that binds us closer to God and enables us to see their love for us even more deeply, which is exactly the theology that Julian teaches. Any thoughts on that before we change topics, Fiona? Uh, no, um, I'm I'm so glad you read that quote. It is absolutely magnificent. And it says everything. Um, Julian speaks truth about God and his or her love. And, and, And then it reminds me is that God loves to work through their children. And so for me, that was so magnificent because I, I really have felt that most of my life I've been acted upon. It would be act or acted upon, but I'd been acted upon by my trauma. I've been acted upon by my predispositions to whatever I've been acted upon, acted upon. And therefore I am just, I, I, I have no say in my life. I have no power to change or alter anything. I'm just the recipient and there is no growth. There is no education. Um, and that really, that those baptismal covenants really when I understood what they were saying, it was like, but Fiona, there is so much you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can mourn. Um, you can carry other people's burdens. You can comfort. 
all of humanity can do that. And then suddenly it was like, I felt so empowered. It's like, these are divine gifts. These are divine covenants we're making. Of course, most of the world is keeping those covenants. You know, billions of people are. Um, They're just not aware of it. But for me, it was so empowering to actually be under covenant. So to do, I felt God's love, his approbation, their encouragement. It's like, it's okay, Fiona, you know, that's okay. We're right here. Get up, get up. You're you're good. You're good. You're good with us. You're only good with us. I know you feel really terrible, but go ahead and apologize. Do whatever you can to resolve that situation, but keep moving, keep moving. And it's so optimistic. I agree. And I think our church could be the home. It should be the home for this. Our scriptural narrative says that we are the home for this beautiful gospel and and what good and hope can we bring the rest of the world if we share that so thank you i, I just love that quote from julian thank you so much oh, you're welcome you're welcome hey everybody the latter-day struggles podcast began on a whim and has become my passion project my vocation and my full-time employment as you might imagine the content you enjoy is the culmination of thousands of hours of planning, study, production, editing, and other behind the scenes work, all in an effort to be a valuable resource to you, my audience here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you feel that what I offer has added value, direction, and strength in your faith journey, I now invite you to financially support my work to help ensure that I can continue to offer you and others this high-quality content in the future. You can now make donations through my Patreon account, conveniently linked in my show notes at the bottom of each episode. Your donations, either small or large, one-time donations or those made on a monthly basis, will help me continue to provide you with high-quality frequent, psychologically and spiritually sound content for your faith journey. And for your willingness to support me, I offer you my most sincere gratitude. Thank you. Now, back to the show. The next topic I want us to touch on for a few minutes, we've actually already kind of introduced as we have been in the conversation we're currently having. And what this, what I want to speak about is I was, I was just tickled by Julian's process as she has these multiple revelations. And then she works through sort of a short explanation. And as the years go by, this is kind of just some history for some of you listeners. Then she goes into a deeper, richer explanation as she ponders and prays and thinks about these things as the years go by. And one of the things I was just a little bit tickled about is that she tends to struggle a little bit with how to reconcile her own revelations with the teachings of what she calls Holy church. And Mm. on occasion they don't square with one another. And this beautiful young woman wants so much to be loyal to Holy church. And yet she cannot deny the fact that what her showings are revealing to her is that Holy church is not necessarily always right. And in my reflections and I was sharing, I, I share frequently my thoughts and feelings and things I read with my husband and he kind of chuckled and he says, poor Julie. And even she struggles with that. I mean, this is always something that's there that we are going to be bumping into personal revelation and what is oftentimes really 
embedded in us, which is this desire to be in community and to want to believe with community. So I'm going to actually, I'm going to read two quotes, if I may, and then I would love for you to talk about them, if you would, Fiona. So she says this, this is her, so she's, her first conundrum is how to make sense of hell. So she says, so Holy Church has taught a lot about what this, what purgatory is and and what hell is. And then of course, in her showings, she just can't see it. It's not there. So she says this, it was never my intention to challenge, to challenge, let me start that over. It was never my intention to challenge the teachings of our faith in any way. I am in full agreement with Holy Church about the purpose of hell and purgatory. I simply wanted for the sake of learning to comprehend every aspect of our faith's teachings, including this one, which I did not really understand. Yet in spite of this desire, I learned nothing whatsoever about hell or purgatory. The only thing that even came close was a showing which God revealed to me that he completely dismisses the spirit of evil. Okay, now the topic number two, and you can kind of take this in whatever direction you want, Fiona, is Julian's wrestle with this idea that we mandatorily need to feel ongoing pain for our sins. She says this, the ordinary teachings of Holy Church, plus my own sense of things, had me convinced that the guilt of our sins hands, um, hangs on us always, from the original transgression of the first man to the time when we ascend to heaven. And so it was a miracle to me that I saw the beloved holding us no more to blame than if, than as if we were as pure and holy as the angels in paradise. The contradiction between these two propositions had me utterly befuddled. She doesn't even answer the question, incidentally. She doesn't know what to do with it. In both cases, she is sitting there saying, I am, I'm, I'm a, and I mean, based on what you just shared with me about her commitment to the church, I mean, we're talking, I guess, literally shackled to the church. And then she's having these showings independent of that from God themselves. And she does not know what to make of that. Would you just comment if you would on what, in other words, this doesn't go away. Just go ahead and visit with me about that if you would. I'm blown away by her maturity. I am, I do not, I lack her maturity of being able to sit with something that I feel is completely contradictory um, to my understanding of God. And she's in that same situation. And it's like, but Holy Church teaches this, but I cannot reconcile it and so she leaves it. She said, it, I, you know, I know it will be reconciled. I have felt this. I don't understand. I love Holy Church. I'm a member of Holy Church. But um, for me, those two things would create such dis dissonance that um, it would be my undoing. Mm. I simply am not able to hold these two dichotomies in my hands. That is my nature and probably my weakness. I think there are others who can uh, say, well, you know, they're mortal. We, they're mortal just like us. What do we expect of mortals but mortality? And so that really amazes me about her is that I think her original vision was so strong that it's like, well, this is really puzzling because this is my experience of God. This is my experience of their love and I have felt it and I cannot deny it. 
this counteracts and conflicts with that. There is nothing I can do with it. And so she lives with both, but clings. Her testimony is with the former. And 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 for me, I feel, um, except that I've moved, it's like I have a testimony of the vulnerable God. I am amazed that it, for years I didn't notice that in Moses 7, God had reversed the first two commandments. He is crying. He is upset. He is weeping because we're not keeping the second. Nothing to do with the first. We keep the first commandment by living the second commandment. That's how we worship God. And so for me, it's 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 a complete transition. I can no longer, there is no space in my mind or my heart for that God. Julian is a bigger woman than I. She is able to, okay, so this is how it is in Holy Church. I love Holy Church. But this is the experience, the revelation that I have had. Um, and she stays true to it. So she just kind of puts this, we know, well, this is, you know, unfortunate. This is what Holy Church says. I love Holy Church. But this is what I have experienced. And this is what I will continue to talk about. So she doesn't allow herself to get into that. Oh, my gosh, I've got two drastically opposing dichotomies that don't, can't even sit on the same planet together. And so, you know, I'm going to reject the one and go with the other. But when we think of the age in which she was writing, she was so effective because she did not attempt to de destroy the other. It was not her God. It was not her her understanding. And she would continue to promote the revelation of God that she has and that I feel is embedded in our LDS scriptural texts, but not get angry, not fight. But, but I think also her situation was slightly different than ours. One, um, she was out of Bedlam for most of her life. And two, I'm not sure if it's because we have developed a greater sensitivity or sensibility. I do feel we have. So, for example, when I look at the generation below my generation, I call them the Zion generation. I mean, we were always called the chosen generation and they stopped doing that because obviously we weren't. But this one is um, they are accepting, they are inclusive. Uh, Broad-minded doesn't, their minds are expansive. They are not capable of seeing the world in the same way we were raised to see the world. I see that. Um, and that's why I call them the Zion generation. They really are. Uh, my children, my grandchildren, they've been born with an intuitive sense of another gospel, and it's Julian's gospel. And um, that gives me great hope. And also, I feel really privileged to live among these young people and their minds, which is why I become so concerned when we lose them, because that, in order to create Zion, those are exactly the abilities one needs. 
and they come naturally to these children. So when this antithetical gospel is presented to them, yes, you can. there is no choice left to us. You can either live in this dis- disequilibrium, which is impossible for most people, or you can love the one and hate the other. And, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a most unfortunate situation we are in, which Julian did not put herself in or did not find herself in or was not forced into those criteria. She was fine balancing the two. And I think for me, part of the problem is that one is expected to revere our authority figures and put them in places where they are probably uncomfortable being themselves. But they're... um, We're not hearing enough yet, although I think maybe if we we can develop ears to hear, we will be able to hear that the, the words healing and woundedness will ring stronger in our minds than the other vocabulary we hear, and that will give us strength. And for me, this, this is a an incredible development and I think a change in um, the psychology of or the testimonies of the leading figures in our church and that there is an understanding, a movement which I think is global away from punishment, away from excising people from our communities if we feel they have not lived up to certain standards. It's slow, it's gradual, but I think um, progress that is going to be permanent has to be slow and gradual because we're frightening people in the process. There are two people in my Sunday school class who are frightened and they will push back. And God wants to keep this tent open and wider and more invitational. So it, it, I have certainly learned, Fiona, there are some things that you are saying that really frighten people, um, make them feel very uncomfortable. I I don't think that's bringing them closer to Christ. So it for me, it is wonderful seeing that, you know, in, in conference talks now, vocabulary that I've heard very rarely in the past, but this idea that Christ is our healer of our wounds is becoming the dominant um, theme, I think. Um, every now and then we will we will certainly have talks that make us all go, oh, you know, and, and I, me especially is like, oh, trauma, uh, you know, so I just turn it off um, mm-hmm. because I am not strong enough to actually even hear it, let alone entertain that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 that's okay. We're different human beings from Julian. There are very few of us who are actually going to be able to replicate what she has done. Nobody has in the thousands of years since Julian wrote. Um, we see bits and pieces, but we see it coming back in um, the, the the writers of whom you've spoken. And in our own church tradition, we are hearing that from our scholars and writers. So it's it's a transition. It will be painful in some ways, but, you know, as you said, we are moving. I think we're moving in the direction God would like us to move. So 
right now, I think we are, we're frontline. We're trying to do as much damage control as we possibly can. But some injuries are such that they require divine healing. And that's okay. People will continue to grow in God, whether they are within our church or without our church. Um, and I think I think we need to be less frightened of that. Maybe I'm talking to myself. Be less frightened of where your children are. Be less frightened. It is okay. They need to leave their lives, have their experience. God is with them. And this idea of letting go, and I think it shows, for me anyway, it's a level of my trust in God. Do I really believe he has them? Are they going to be okay? Do I really trust? And if I if I really hang on to the things that I most believe, I do trust. All shall be well. Mm. All shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Loving what you're saying. And I'm actually, you're giving me so much food for thought, Fiona, because when I posed this question to you, I I, I hadn't thought through the, I didn't have a, a good a answer. And I'm not so sure I still do. And yet at the same time, some of your words actually had me thinking and feeling a few thoughts that I do want to share, very provisional because I don't actually know the answer, but a couple of things that came up for me is one of the things that's beautiful about her wrestle is that there's something very beautiful about a woman who is so inspired, who is instrumental in bringing about truth the way she has done, who also is beautifully human and struggles with the same things that we struggle with in terms of loyalty to Holy Church, as opposed to loyalty to one's own conscience. And who is, I think, is what I took from this is her wrestle is legitimate. She's a woman. She's a woman 650 years ago. She is a dependent. She needed, there was um, psychological safety reasons for her to hold on to her loyalty to Holy Church. And I think sometimes that is something that plays into each of our processes, which is some somewhat, it makes it challenging to be able to parse out what we, that there are parts of Holy Church, to use her words, that we love, that is formative of who we are, that we appreciate, that we're grateful for. And yet at the same time, we sometimes also individually can have very formative experiences, maybe, you know, maybe revelatory or maybe not, but still the same. They are formative and they are different than what we have learned from Holy Church. And there is a tension in how to have a complex relationship with the the tension between love, loyalty, the good that comes from our our institution, and the need to also be ever evolving and growing up and being able to have a complex relationship and put put some things away by holding on to other things. That is so beautiful. I love what you have just said, and you are absolutely right. Sometimes we um, just need to cling. Um, so, for example, I think of the wards I've attended um, in my life and the friendship, the community that I think is quite extraordinary that we are able to create as a religious tradition that really I haven't found. I'll go back to um, mass every now and then, and it's beautiful. I love the service. It it, it takes me home. But there is no connection. Mm. 
with those parishioners, with each other. And they've probably been attending that service for years. And yet, you know, when you step into, when I have stepped into one of our wards, there is this feeling that you're stepping into a place where you are loved. Um, the people may be thinking very differently from you, believing very differently from you. But what I feel we really succeed in is this idea of service. And so you find yourself in the company serving with people you normally would not hang around with, you know, either um, for, you know, all sorts of reasons. But then this brings us together. And that love is genuine, divine love. Yes. And I, I think for a church that has that, where everybody walking, well, most everybody, I mean, people will say people are out of sync, but a lot of times we're just thinking in our own head. And that's fine. And 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 yes, dis, there are dissonant things. I'll sit on the back bench so that if I hear something that uh, that I need to leave. I can't. I can't listen to it. I can leave, and sometimes I have and flown out that back door, and you know, just got over the hyperventilation, and then, but then realizing that the body of the church itself is beautiful and outward reaching and outward looking and desirous of building Zion. And so I, I I love what you just said, because I think, yes, absolutely, um, we are moving in that direction. I'm not li living long enough to <laughs> see what I know is coming down the road. And so maybe I'm just jealous. But but just what you just last said just really, you know, just struck me so powerfully with a spirit um, that we have great cause to hope. Yes. Well, and I think this very platform and every conversation that I hold with beautiful people like yourself, I hope is towards the end of moving us towards more healing, more love, a truer, deeper, richer understanding of the infinite love of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother and a savior. And I think that is perhaps for me, um, I feel like the way our world has shifted and changed because of the internet and our ability to share and to commune and come together and to find community and to speak like we are doing now in some ways is absolutely God moving through us. And, yes. and to not underestimate that, that we are the church. And if we want the church to receive revelation, we move about our lives endeavoring to be people that are open to hearing and speaking in God's name, truth and goodness and openness and inclusion and peace. Which is exactly what you do. You are such an example to me because this is not hard. This task you have taken upon yourself where you spend much of your time in pain with people who are in pain and let you and yet you do what courage Valerie what courage you have what goodness what beauty and it is you and people like you who are helping to heal our church helping us realize that there are people who think as we do that we are a body of Christ and that we are moving together. And you're right, the internet has given you an opportunity to be able to expand that voice. And yes, that is a divine gift.
Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I thank you for being a part of my journey and teaching me about the nature of God that helps me then do the work that I'm doing. So we are a companionship, Fiona. Oh, I love it. Never served a mission, but um, now I feel that I am. And gosh, I couldn't have a lovelier companion. So I'm really thrilled about this. (laughs) That's wonderful. Let's go ahead and end this episode right now. Fiona and I are going to pick this conversation up with one more episode that you will have. I'm sure you're going to love it. And I'm going to love offering it to you because we're going to just learn a little bit more about Fiona's story. She touched a little bit on it at the beginning of this episode, and we're going to go deeper into that next time. So if you will just stay tuned for our next visit, you're going to get to hear a little bit more about her. In the meantime, if this is a if this podcast is something that is meaningful to you, just a couple of asks here. If you will uh, rate and review this podcast, it helps other people on a religious or spiritual journey, especially here in or around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It helps them feel that we are a trustworthy source and that our hearts are to help people come closer in their relationship with God and with Jesus Christ and to learn to have confidence in themselves, to learn that they have spiritual freedom and authority to choose and feel and do what is right for them in their lives that will help them return back to their higher power and find our higher power in themselves in the meantime. Also, if you're interested in knowing more about how to join one of my processing and support groups, you can catch me at latterdaystruggles.com on Instagram at Latterday Struggles Podcast, or you can email me directly on at info at valeriehammaker.com. And finally, and last but not least, I am a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. And so I would invite you to please, please support the Dialogue Journal, listen to the Dialogue Podcasting Network podcasts because they are one of the founding voices of Mormon progressive thought and the invitation of that which is so profoundly important in our faith and in every faith, and that is dialogue, conversations that help people feel seen and known as children of God in a journey. So thank you for being here, and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.